the answer is yeah, so many, I don't even know what they were. I mean, you look, you have failures all the time. There's a lot of things that don't work out. And, you know, as long as there's enough stuff that do, does work out, you just keep busy at it. You know, I just forget them and go on. I, I, I don't even think about it. But yeah, of course, I mean, everybody has failures. <laughs> Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. Before we get into things today, <laughs> I just want to say I hate February. I mean, uh, I guess what I'm getting at here is that in the last, you know, I don't know, the last the last few weeks of, of the show and everything like that, I have detailed a number of like recent successes of mine in, you know, PhD uh, progress and all that sort of thing. I recently hit a, hit a big milestone. And, you know, as I've mentioned in the, you know, sort of ads, if you've listened to those in the, the middle of the shows, I'm sort of reaching the end of my PhD program and it's all coming together, you know, pretty nicely on that front. But, you know, ever since I hit that big milestone, uh, a couple weeks ago, I guess it was middle of January now, so more than a couple weeks ago. I I just, I haven't done anything at all. I'm going to be honest with you. I've been totally and utterly unproductive. And, uh, you know, there was a, I don't know, maybe a week or two after that, like where I was like, okay, I'm done with that PhD milestone. And then, you know, if you, if you go and look at my Substack or my website, I totally revamped all that sort of stuff. And it's now nice and crisp and all of the, you know, it's the, the, you know, everything's organized and like, okay, so I got a bunch of, and then once I sort of had finished, you know, the aesthetic, you know, revamping all that, nothing, nothing. Uh, so here I am here to say that I have been super unproductive for all of February so far and just sort of lounging around, not sure what to do with myself. So if you are feeling that way, you are not alone. And I want to share that side of, of the process of where things are at, as well as the times when it's going good and I'm feeling like, okay, I'm getting a bunch of stuff done. So anyway, uh, let's let's get into the episode here. This week's guest, uh, this was super cool, uh, is, is none other than George Lakoff. So George is one of the most highly cited cognitive scientists of all time with his book, Metaphors We Live By, co-authored with uh, Mark Johnson, having been referenced in over 75,000 other scientific papers. George is best known for the work that he describes in that book on, on basically how metaphor provides the structure underlying cognition. Generally, it's known as the conceptual metaphors framework, as well as his foundational ideas about the embodied mind. You know, actually, in, in last week's episode, I talked to the author Annie Murphy-Paul about her recent book, The Extended Mind, and that definitely draws heavily on the embodied mind program of research of which Lakoff is a cornerstone. So uh, George is also very politically active, but we don't really venture much into those sort of topics in this conversation. He does have a podcast on that that you can check out. Uh, his own, where I think they haven't recorded that many episodes recently, but you know, from a couple of years back, that you can you can uh, take a listen to. But in this episode, our discussion mainly centers around George's formative experiences, particularly his childhood and adolescence, 
as well as the genesis of his most famous ideas in cognitive science and linguistics. As always, uh, I would really appreciate it if you consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter. You can find that at codycommerce.substack.com. It is definitely the best way to keep up with all of my work, to support the podcast, to know when the latest episodes are out, and to check out my other writing. In that other writing, my goal is, is always to try and create this deeper connection between our theoretical understanding of life, particularly the kind of you know ideas that are, are based you know, that are brought brought to bear by the people that I talk to in the show and the on-the-ground experience of, of, of life itself. So if you're not a subscriber already, please consider checking it out and subscribing. That is codycommerce.substack.com. For other ways you can support the, the, the podcast, you can also leave a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify. That helps a ton in bringing in new listeners. So thank you for listening. And without any further ado, here is George Makoff. So George, uh, I guess I'm, I'm kind of curious to, to start off with, with this. What was the intellectual culture of your, of your family growing up? The intellectual culture of my family, I'm not sure. Uh, first, my parents never made it to high school. They had a grammar school education. They had to go to work, my mother at 12, my father at 13. Uh, both very smart people, but they were poor. And they had to support people in their family. And so, uh, you know, they uh, wanted to make sure that, uh, as my mother put it, she wanted me to go to college, whatever that was. <laughs> she didn't know, she just knew the word. <laughs> I, have a, uh, I have a great story for you. I mean, she never, she, she understood college as the same as, as uh, grammar school. She didn't, she thought it was just an ex- a continuation of grammar school. And when I started teaching, my first teaching job was at Harvard. And, um, you know, uh, the day I started teaching, I got a call from my mother. And my mother said, how, you know, how's it go? I said, fine. She said, the kids, did they behave? <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, a few smart Alex, but, you know, okay. She said, the principal, that he's sitting in your class? <laughs> she had no conception of even, you know, a high school here, much less anything but a grammar school. I mean, she was, my mother was born in 1899. Uh, she was 42 when I was born. So, you know, you can imagine the, the gulf of that. Uh, my father was an incredibly smart, interesting guy. Uh, who did all kinds of good work. He um, worked for the government accounting agency and uncovered lots of scandals, which he reported uh, surreptitiously to the New York Times. Uh, when he died, we sent in an obituary and they, they asked for his picture at the New York Times. He said that he, they, he was their favorite letter writer. Uh, you know, and uh, he's really was a wonderful, smart, interesting magnificent person. Um, I remember uh, at the age of seven, he had, he gave me a seven-year-old's view of democracy. There's no one better than you and you're not better than anybody else. (laughs) Two sentences on democracy for a seven-year-old. And, uh, uh, you know, he was great. Uh, Amazingly wonderful guy. Uh, Died young, died at 52. 
when I was 12, a disastrous, worst, worst day of my life. Uh, but, um, you know, he, he was, he was magnificent. My mother was just a hardworking woman, a great cook, great housekeeper, and just very, very strong and lasted a long time. Um, you know, uh, I still cook her recipes. Oh, wow. Uh, any, <laughs> any recipes in, in particular that, uh, your, your personal favorites? Oh, her sweet and sour cabbage. Oh, Unbelievable. Wow. <laughs> I, right. I, I, I have it, you know, every other day, you know? Oh yeah. Nice. <laughs> but, uh, other, other, I mean, we have a list of her recipes and they're, they're great. And, uh, uh, besides that, uh, they were just, you know, my mother was a, a force of nature. <laughs> she was just indomitable, you know, uh, cooking all the time, taking care of a house, um, shoveling snow <laughs> you know, it's just uh, gee we um, made a living by running a rooming house and she took care of the rooming house and cleaned the rooms I mean just unbelievable uh, bundle of energy uh, you know so. are, are there any specific traits or dispositions that you feel like you inherited from your your parents besides just you know sort of general intelligence and work work ethic that sort of thing oh, oh yeah I mean uh you know, um, I inherited you know, my father's love of, of classical music. He played classical music every Sunday. Uh, I inherited his, um, you know, uh, commitment to democracy, his political commitments. He was very political. He, he taught me to, to read the New York Times uh, every day from the time I was 10. And I've been doing that since I was 10. Uh, you know, to go through, keep track of politics. Um, you know, um, the, uh, the things he taught me were really amazing. And uh, he had a, he was very ill a lot. He had a, heart, a very bad heart condition. So he couldn't get out of the house a whole lot. And I had to bring him books from the library. You know, I would get, you know, it, the, normally they would only let you take out four books at a time, but because it was me that me and my father, they let me take out seven at a time. <laughs> he just read constantly. <laughs> uh, and he ran, uh, made a living. He had uh, early, early on sold insurance. Uh, but then uh, he set up uh, a, a collection agency with friends who were in that business. And he ran it from our front porch by telephone. And, you know, when they made collections, he got whatever the proportion of that was. And uh, between that and the rooming house, we survived. My mother ran this rooming house, which was a, an amazing thing to grow up in. There's, uh, the house was next, we had, we rented our rooms in our house. Uh, and then, uh, which was interesting too, uh, there was a couple who lived there for eight years uh, upstairs with uh, a room and a kitchenette. Uh, he was a deep sea diver in the Navy and he trained other deep sea divers. Uh, and in fact, uh, there, he, he trained the first black deep sea diver and uh, they made a, uh, a movie of this with Robert De Niro playing him. <laughs> All right. Right, yeah. There you go. But, uh, you know, he, when he did dives, I would go down to the Navy base uh, 
and sit next to the, uh, he would go into this machine that, that where you had a, uh, you know, after a dive, you go into this machine that made sure you didn't have bubbles in your blood. You had to sit there and I sat down there next to the machine and we talked, I talked them through that and so on. Um, there was always wrestling matches at the Navy base. So every Saturday night, I went down to the Navy base with him to the wrestling matches. <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, it's that kind of life. Um, uh, you know, it's just most people don't have that kind of life. And, uh, you know, the um, uh, we rented out rooms in our house. I, I never knew who was going to sleep in the room next door to us. Um, you know, truck drivers or whoever came through. I mean, you know, we just rent out there. I had the experience of renting a room to a murderer. Yeah. And uh, like an murder. active murder or a retired murder? No, somebody who had committed murder and was wanted for murder. Oh. Now, this is real. <laughs> all right, let me try to, I, I, all right, to, to get a feel for this, you have to understand <laughs> Bayonne, New Jersey in the 1950s or so. <laughs> um, the, you know, it, we had a commission form of government. So whoever ran the, the first top five vote voters got to have various commissions. And the Polish undertaker, usually one had <laughs> got the most votes. So he got the police department for a certain number of years. And he didn't speak English. He only spoke Polish. Okay. So um, he had a, a deputy who happened to be uh, a high school teacher who was bilingual in Polish and English. And he was also my homeroom teacher and my biology teacher in high school. So, uh, you know, when I was in high school, uh, I, you know, uh, did that, had that. And um, uh, I talked to him regularly about, you know, being, you know, he was, both deputy commissioner of police and the biology and my my biology teacher and homeroom teacher in high school, right? This doesn't happen in those places. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there was a point at which he he said we uh, we need a file clerk, you know. And there was a woman who had rented a room uh, in our house. She had her husband had abandoned her with three children. Uh, the, her priest called up my mother. My mother knew every priest in town because whenever they, you know, people were abandoned, they would call to see if they could get a room in the rooming house. So we got that. And so she got a room in the basement of the rooming house with her three kids. And then uh, I rented a room to somebody else who was behind her. And uh, he, he was the guy who turned out to be the murderer. But meanwhile, we didn't know. She... She had started an affair with him. So she was sleeping with this guy who happened to be a murderer, but she didn't know. She needed money. She was out of, but she had experience as a file clerk. So I mentioned this to my homeroom teacher who is deputy commissioner of the police. And he, he said, hey, we need somebody to keep track of all of the wanted posters that we get. We get zillions of them. So he hired her to you know, keep track of the wanted posters. Sure enough, she gets a wanted poster for the guy she's sleeping with. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the guy, this murderer was out of broke and he had certain skills. He was a painter and he could do wallpapering. And my mother, and he would do it cheaply. My mother said, oh, 
You know, we need some paint. We have some rooms that need to be painted and wallpapered. So she hired him to, to do some painting and some wallpapering in the house. So he's up there one day, he's doing wallpapering. And, um, uh, you know, the uh, a woman he's sleeping with gets his wanted poster and reports him to the police, right? So he's putting up wallpaper in, in our house. And, the, and I'm come, I come home from a school as, the, as 10 police cars pull up in front of our house <laughs> and they run in and he's putting up, I look up, I see him putting up wallpaper and then the cops run in with guns and say, hands up. He's got wallpaper heads. <laughs> and then my mother runs in behind the cops saying, let him finish, let him finish. We have nobody else to wallpaper. <laughs> You know, and the cops let him finish wallpapering the roof. <laughs> you know, uh, that was what life was like. Huh. <laughs> you know, uh, growing up where I grew up. Uh, I'll give you another ex uh, good example of how life was like. Uh, the town I grew up with was 80% Catholic and 12% Jewish. I'm Jewish. We grew up with lots and lots of Catholics everywhere. Um, we had a wonderful public library, one of these Carnegie libraries, beautiful building and lots of money for books. It was a great library. And I used to, you know, they, they would normally let you take out four books, but my father read so much, they let me take out seven for him. <laughs> yeah. And the librarian was uh, the aunt of one of my best friends. Uh, her name was, was Minnie. So is, I would go to Minnie the librarian to take out books for my father and she'd let me take out extra books because she knew who I was and who he was and so on. And um, then it um, turned out that uh, there's, this was an age, a point when there were certain very popular books uh, that I wanted to read like Brave New World or 1984, George Orwell and so on. And I would go to the library in the stacks and the books weren't in the stacks, but in the card catalog, they had the card catalog card, card for them, but it had a little red dot on it. So I finally, after I couldn't find the books for a while, I went to Minnie the librarian and I said, Minnie, what's going on here? You know, uh, what's with the red dots? And she said, oh, she looked around and she got her keys and she said, come with me. You go to the back of the library, down steps into a dark room. She opens the door and says, they're all in here. You know, and I said, why? What's going on here? I said, these are books that are on the Catholic index. The Pope has decided no Catholics are allowed to read it. Read these. But you're Jewish, you can read them. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll let you take out any ones you want. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, this is, this is real. <laughs> That's funny. You got access to the Jewish exclusive part of the library. Exactly. <laughs> um, so is there a time that you can first remember getting excited about an idea, whether that was a book that you read or, or something you saw in the New York times oh, or uh, an experience that stuck with you or, or even later on in, in, in college and that sort of thing. So many in high school, even, um, the, the thing, all right, very important fact is I have a brother who's 10 years older than me. And my brother um, 
you know, went into the, the family business. He became a professor, but or before I did. And uh, by the time I was in high school, he was teaching at Harvard. Um, and, um, but he always got me lots of books from, you know, and I, you know, he, my, my uh, uh, birthday presents were always either books or uh, records or something like that, a record, a cheap a $20 record player and a few records. And, you know, my first, uh, you know, my first, uh, one of my first three records was Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. Uh, and then there was, you know, a couple of others I remember. Is Beethoven uh, your, your favorite composer? Was that someone who you and your dad have, had in common? Well, I remember the seventh very well. I played it over hundreds of times. But no, it's not just Beethoven. I, I eventually got into classical music. I love Bach. I love lots of other composers. That's, that's not an issue. I, we listen to the, the local classical music station every night at home. So, yeah. Lots of lots of favorite composers. No, okay, we can <laughs> no. we can put a pin in that, and we'll 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 put that aside for now. And uh, you know, my brother, uh, you know, would get me lots of get me books uh, of all sorts. I mean, there was one point where he uh, there was a book put out, a, a collection of four books on on uh, mathematical uh, essays on mathematics called The World of Mathematics. Uh, for a book collection, and he bought me that when I was about 10. And, you know, from the time I was 10, I was reading these math books and, and so on, because my brother was in grad school at Harvard, and he was, you know, buying me stuff that, that I could read. Um, and also, my I had interesting high school teachers. Uh, I went to what was usually mostly a terrible high school, but there were five or six fantastic teachers. Uh, you know, a great English teacher who had also taught my brother 10 years earlier, um, a uh, terrific math teacher who introduced me to all sorts of stuff in math, um, actually two really good math teachers, uh, great German teacher, you know, there, there were just, you know, uh, five, four or five terrific teachers and everybody else was awful. <laughs> and uh, so I Took, took the classes from everybody I could, but from the best teachers I could. And with them, I got a, a great um, education. Um, so uh, that you know, it was interesting that way. Um, <laughs> I have a great story for you. Um, being Jewish in a town that was 80% Catholic, but only 12% Jewish, there was a, you know, a Jewish community center there. Um, and, uh, but my brother being 10 years older had studied with a, a, uh, a great high school English teacher named Margaret Clark who had studied at, at Columbia. And she had, she had been a nun, she was Catholic and you know, very religious Catholic when you know, the church seven o'clock every morning. And, um, but she had gone to Columbia University as a nun and studied with one of their best literary critics and uh, was incredibly smart and well-read uh, in literature. And uh, my brother studied with her. And then later, 10 years after that, I studied with her both sophomore and senior year. But um, at one point, uh, she, when my brother was in a senior in, in high school, uh, 
she um, decided that the high school wasn't teaching enough. And she offered uh, uh, for free at night uh, a class to her best high school students uh, to come over and read the history of Western civilization. They read you know, classic books in the history of Western civilization. They were just not taught in the high school and there was no college there and so on. And she thought people should do that. Well, uh, you know, uh, my brother went to this, just great, reported back, you know, they were you know, reading uh, Greek philosophy and all sorts of wonderful things. And um, then it turned out that one of the students uh, who um, uh, had, was in that class, uh, the year after that, went to college at Columbia. He was in a very, very religious Jewish family. And when he went to Columbia, he converted to Catholicism, which was a big shock. And they decided, the, the Jewish community decided that, that this English teacher was, try, was converting people to Catholicism with these classes. We knew perfectly well, my brother was in the classes, this was bullshit, you know? But uh, the local Jewish community center formed a, you know, was worried my brother was the best Hebrew school student in the city. You know, he was there, there, the scholar. He wound up going to Brandeis University because he was a great Hebrew school student. And um, so they decided that, the, you know, that the, the, there was a problem that, that this teacher was going to try to convert him to Catholicism. So they formed a committee to save my brother's soul. This is real. Specifically <laughs> so just for your brother. Yeah. There was a, a committee at the Jewish Community Center to save my brother's soul from this English teacher. Did they succeed? <laughs> and the English teacher was teaching, just teaching them Greek philosophy, you know. In the history of Western Civ in, at night. <laughs> well, my father got wind of this, and boy, he blew up. He, you know, he blew up at the community center crowd stuff and went up there and bawled them out. You know, <laughs> and my my brother's soul does not need saving. You know? <laughs> but you know, this was real. This is what you went through. You know, it's like uh, you know, in the library, I could. Uh, go in and get books out of this room that were uh, of books that were on the Catholic index. Catholics couldn't take their books out, but Jews could. I mean, <laughs> this is not like a normal upbringing. <laughs> you know, for me it was normal, but <laughs> uh, it, you know, it was interesting. As as I said, you know, we, uh, you know we. You know, I rented out rooms and I rented a room to a murderer. <laughs> so. so when did you first start to develop interests in psychology and cognitive science and linguistics and the things that sort of became, you know, your more formal interests later on? That was uh, when I went to college. Um, I went to MIT. Uh, and um, uh, that was actually a wonderful thing. Um, my brother was upset that I, I that I only made the waiting list at Harvard and didn't get in. And in fact, he, at the time, he was an assistant professor at Harvard. So what is this? They're not taking his brother into Harvard. So he took me with him 
to the admissions office at Harvard. And they looked up my file and they said at Harvard, uh, you know, the woman said, well, we, we looked at, we evaluated your brother and we think that your brother, if he came here, would be on the Dean's list. So my brother says, look, not everybody's on the Dean's list. Why did you reject him? So they said, let's, let's look at the files again. They looked at the files some more and they said, oh, we, we figured it out. He's from the wrong district. Namely, he's Jewish. Mm. <laughs> and they had a Jew, a Jew quota. Yeah. And, you know, that was real. You know, they had a quota on how many Jews they could accept. So, uh, so I didn't get into Harvard, which I thought was a great idea. <laughs> I'm very glad that that happened because I went to MIT and wound up um, studying with Noam Chomsky and Roman Jakobson and Morris Halley, the, the three greatest linguists in the world, and discovered uh, linguistics. Uh, and also cognitive science. Cognitive science was just starting up there. So, uh, you know, it was the best thing that could have happened to me uh, that I didn't get into Harvard. <laughs> so you mentioned a few of the, the linguists that you, that you uh, were exposed to there. Which mentor or teacher or professor had the biggest influence on your work? And what's, what was it that you, that you got from Well, them? it actually wasn't. All right, a couple of people. Uh, there was an English professor there named Norman Holland, who was also an expert on Freud. And I took his classes uh, and, and read through volumes of Freud. And he did you know, a lot of Freudian analysis of literature, which was extremely interesting. I took you know, uh, a Shakespeare class where we went through Shakespeare plays but what Freud would have seen in the play Shakespeare plays and so on. A really interesting introduction. And I took several courses from him. He was a guy named Norman Holland, wonderful, wonderful teacher. And he was also my advisor. And at one point he said, look, um, something special is happening. Uh, one of the world's great linguists who's at Harvard, Roman Jakobsen, is gonna come over for a semester at MIT and teach Po poetics, and you're taking his course. Well, that course changed my life. Uh, it turned out that uh, I got to know Jakobsen well. I, uh, in fact, what happened was I, uh, he had office hours every Thursday at four, and I would get the, the last seat. And then when that was over, we'd go over uh, various things. And I learned how to do doing, uh, uh, phonological and, and grammatical analysis from him. And I learned it so well that I could do it as well as he could do it. And at one point, uh, my first university lecture was, he said to me one day, uh, we were going over this stuff. What happened was I would go uh, get the last spot online at his office hours, and then he would take me to dinner. You know, and he'd buy me a dinner and, you know, some nice Portuguese, he liked Portuguese wine. So I got Vino Verde, uh, you know, that was nice. So he would, you know, professor was taking me to dinner. Uh, and then we would talk through various poets and, and poet poems I was looking at and so on. And I learned to do this. And one day he said to me, I will not be in class this week. I must go to Cornell to lecture. How would you like to lecture in, uh, in my class on your analysis of Yeats? 
So my first university lecture was substituting for Roman Jakobson, the world's greatest linguist. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah. <laughs> and it was okay. I did okay. Uh, you know, I, this, this is not normal. You know? And, um, you know, so, uh, but I had, I had learned how to do his, what he was doing as well as he could do it. And uh, because I was there uh, every office hour at the last hour, you know, and spent a lot of time with him. Um, and, uh, you know, this stuff like that doesn't happen often. I also studied with Chomsky a lot, um, with Morris Halley, who was his associate. Uh, and um, I learned how to do Chomsky analyses of literature and so on. Um, and, um, you know, so I, I had, uh, I did pretty damn well at that. And then uh, when I applied to graduate schools, um, I, um, uh, I didn't get into a lot of the, the schools I applied to because I was coming from MIT. I, was, I applied in the literature departments and they weren't used to getting MIT applicants in literature departments. But I got into Indiana University, which at that time had a very good English department. So I got into the English department there and then wound up doing English and linguistics there. And got a PhD from there um, and uh, you know did fine. Uh, and then uh, uh, by uh, a very strange bunch of circumstances, I got hired on the Harvard faculty, which is another long story. <laughs> but uh, my first job was teaching at Harvard. Hey, Cody here. So as I've mentioned on the show before, I am graduating from my PhD program pretty soon here hopefully in spring 2022. And while that's great, it also means I have to start making plans for my next phase. And ideally, I'd like to do this. I'd like to podcast and write and be able to achieve at least a semblance of what looks like a next career step producing this kind of work. So it is time for me to take the pod from something that merely exists to the next level. And part of what this entails is that I am going to be offering a premium subscription to my podcasts and writing. So one of the questions that I've been asking myself recently is, what have I learned from doing this podcast and how has it affected me personally? And so I am starting a segment called CogRev Redux, in which I listen back to my catalog of episodes starting from my first interview over two years ago. And I edit down the original to a 30-minute show featuring the highlights of what that guest said and, and what really stuck with me over that time, as well as my own reflections on where I was when the interview was conducted, what I was interested in, and how that's all changed. And I will also go into any backstory I have with the guest or strange behind-the-scenes antics that happened during the taping that didn't make the final cut. So I will offer two free CogRev Redux episodes in January. Then from there, they will come out for premium subscribers every other week. With the premium subscription, you also get my series called Reviewed. It's Reviewed. 
in which I revisit, reread, or reconsider the books, movies, podcasts, or other content that has most impacted me throughout the years. In this show, I love to ask people about the books that have most influenced their thinking, and so now I want to explore my own answers to those questions in greater depth. There's also a new series I'm launching called The Grad Student's Guide to Podcasting. It features everything I've learned while doing Cognitive Revolution through my PhD, as well as interviews with other graduate student podcasters. That will be coming out throughout January 2022. Anyway, like I said, this is part of me building out toward my next phase, so I really do appreciate the support. If you are interested in signing up for a subscription, you can check out codycommerce.substack.com. That's codycommerce.substack.com. Even if you just sign up for the free version, it helps a ton to support my future work. Okay, thank you for hearing me out. Now, back to the show. So you've had a, a lot of successes in your career, and we'll, we'll get to those in a minute. But I'm curious, do you have any instructive failures that you experienced? Oh, God. Um, the answer is, yeah, so many, I don't even know what they were. I mean, you look, you have failures all the time. It's a lot of things that don't work out. And, you know, as long as there's enough stuff that do, does work out, you just keep busy at it. Um, you know, I just forget them and go on. I, I, I don't even think about <laughs> it. But yeah, of course. I mean, everybody has failures. Sounds maybe kind of like the Sinatra model of, of how to move on, which is like regrets. I've had a few, too few to mention. Uh, yeah. But... Uh, yeah, I, I've had, you know, things that didn't work out. And luckily there were enough things that did. And um, that, uh, you know, was just how it was. Uh, and uh, I was extremely, you know, fortunately I got hired, at, I got hired to teach at uh, Berkeley which was interesting in itself. Um, the, uh, at the time, you know, I had studied with Chomsky and I had learned how to do his, his stuff very well. I had learned to do uh, his kind of analyses, you know, so well that I could do it as well as he could. In fact, I could, and I could point out mistakes when he made them, you know, which he didn't like. Um, but, uh, and then um, I, I had to write a term paper for him. I started, I decided to write it on, uh, it was for a course, very strange course. It was a course that was half on the mathematical foundations of uh, linguistics, which, which is straight math. Uh, and I was a math major, that was no problem for me. And then the, uh, and fun. And then it was on phonology, on sound structure. And so I took, some poets uh, who did interesting sound structures. And I did a term paper for him, for Chomsky. And it turns out I went into Chomsky to see him about the term paper. And it turns out he had never read any poets. He just didn't read poetry ever. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow so I can totally know who any of these people were. You know? That's so, I mean, I don't think Chomsky's ever actually used any actual language. He only just makes up utterances like colorless green ideas sleep furiously. He doesn't yeah, well, actually yeah. care how anyone really uses language. And it's, well, what's interesting is there was a, a literature professor at Yale 
who, who decided to write a poem using that line as the last line of the poem and wrote the poem so that that made sense of the rest <laughs> of the poem. <laughs> I love that. That's so funny. You know, it was not nonsense at all. It was actually, you know, it happened to be <laughs> using metaphors and other things. It's the ultimate <laughs> counter argument to Chomsky. That's great. Yes, um, exactly. So wasn't nonsense at all. It's just, you know, you just had to understand understand it metaphorically. So your your most famous work is Metaphors We Live By, co-authored with with Mark Johnson. And my understanding is that you two met in January of 1979, uh, and then by 1980, uh, which, if my math is correct, is one year later, the book was published. So how did things come together for that project so quickly? Uh, it was magical. It was really interesting. Um, Mark had been at the University of Chicago and had gotten a job. Uh, at, he was a specialist in Kant and um, something else in philosophy. And uh, the, the Kant specialist at Berkeley was on leave and they hired him to substitute. And uh, so he moved to Berkeley, got an apartment, which happened to be four blocks from my house. And he called me up and explained what was going on. And he kind of came here and I said, okay, let's go and, you know, get a cappuccino at my favorite cafe around the corner. And he was living four blocks from the house. And it turned out that we had the same ideas about metaphor for totally different reasons. He, for philosophical reasons, me for linguistic reasons. And he was such a, he's such a nice guy and such a smart guy. And he knew, the thing about Mark was Mark knew philosophy so incredibly deeply. And, and, and I found out why. Um, it turned out that he was raised in Kansas City and he got a job at the Kansas City Library uh, answering all questions on philosophy and checking out their philosophy books. But he also, they got a, a grant for a radio program. And every week he would do a, 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 an idea in philosophy and go through half an hour, 10 minutes on the ancients and the medievals and the moderns. And in doing that, he learned philosophy so well that he could just snap off anything in, in the history of philosophy. I mean, just, you know, and, and get to the essence of it right away. Uh, and it was astonishing to talk to him about it. And uh, when we started working on, you know, uh, metaphor stuff, uh, it turned out that um, he brought all the history of the stuff in it right away and understood the metaphor stuff. And, um, and he's such a nice guy, you know, <laughs> he's just a sweetheart and, um, uh, and very efficient. He, he, he's so efficient. He, you know, he would get up at six in the morning, uh, run a few miles. He was a long distance runner. Uh, and then he would uh, type up whatever we had done the day before. And by the time I woke up and had breakfast, he had everything <laughs> ready to go. From whatever we had done before, he had typed up and, uh, you know, uh, and then we did the next day's work. And every day it was like this. So that, that's uh, how the collaborative process was, was that you guys had a discussion basically in the afternoon and then he kind of 
put it into it wasn't in the afternoon it was actually like late morning i i <laughs> one of these people wake up wakes up late and he wakes up at six and goes running yeah <laughs> yeah and he was so he's a uh a farm boy he was just you know tall, six foot three thin uh, long distance runner and he was raised on a farm in kansas uh right outside of kansas city uh and um you know, we couldn't be, have been more culturally different. And, uh, you know, we just, you know, I just respected this guy so much and what we just enjoyed each other's company and always have. Um, and he was funny. You know, we both told, we'd tell jokes to each other all the time. You know? Uh, you know, we just, we just had a, have always had a wonderful time together and we worked together for over 30 years. So you mentioned that you guys had independently come to similar ideas about metaphor. Can you say a little bit about where those ideas came from for you? Because uh, obviously metaphor has become, so, I mean, it's, it's a foundation okay. stone of, of, of cognitive science and so much research. So how, how did those ideas start to come together for you? Okay, well, I had uh, learned you know, the traditional theory of metaphor from Aristotle, et cetera. And um, then I was teaching an undergraduate seminar at Berkeley. My house is six blocks from campus. And I, uh, it was in February, it rained a lot and so on. And I just uh, decided to teach it in my dining room. We have a nice big table there, the table's still there. And there were like five or six students who had signed up for this. And I uh, got in contact with them and I said, hey, would you like to come over to the house and, you know, make you coffee and sit around the dining room? They said, great, you know, six blocks from campus, you know, fine. It's, uh, uh, you know, just as easy, probably easier than going to campus. So uh, we had a group of about six people there. And we uh, sat around the dining room table and uh, one February afternoon, it was raining as usually it is in Berkeley in February. And um, one of the women students in the class came in a little bit late, drenched, and she sat down and she was crying. And uh, you know, it was Berkeley in the 1970s. And so we formed an instant support group. Everybody knew how to do this. And we said, can we help? You know, is there anything you would like to talk to us about it? And so on. And she said, well, my boyfriend said that our relationship was a dead end street. And I don't know how to, you know, what to do about that. So I, you know, I said, well, look, if it's a dead end street, that means you've got to stop going the way you've been going. You've got to turn around. And she said, yeah, uh, I actually was hoping it would go into another dimension. Right? And I thought at that point that what was going on was there was a metaphor here. But it wasn't uh, a classic Aristotelian metaphor that was in the language. It was in her thought. And I said, that's interesting. And, and the reading for that day for the seminar was a article by John Searle on metaphor. And John Searle never understood metaphor. It was a really stupid article. But we, when it, we had read the article, we went around and 
you know, and uh, the students just said, this is ridiculous. And we took her example of that metaphor and pointed out that under Searle's analysis, you couldn't possibly make any sense of this. And so um, I realized, I said, well, look, what's going on in this metaphor? And what's going on was your mapping from a domain of uh, your understanding travel, a love in terms of travel. And then there was a mapping from the conceptual structure of one to the conceptual structure of the other. So I sat down and worked out the mapping. I, you know, I'd done mathematics, I could do mappings. And I sat down, I worked out the mappings. And I said, that's cool. Are there any others like this? <laughs> you know? And then we started around the table and people came up with all kinds of other metaphors of this kind. And we had discovered conceptual metaphor, unconscious conceptual metaphor. I mean, just an undergraduate seminar, sitting around the table. Wow. The table's still there. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think has given this theory or this framework the staying power that it's enjoyed? Because, I mean, there, there are so many influential theories in, in cognitive science, but, I mean, even still, this one towers above the rest like i i was looking at google scholar earlier. i think there's like close to eighty thousand citations for 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 this book which is just astronomical so what what do you kind of how do you make sense of of the staying power of that work because it's true because once you see it you can't not see it once you see these metaphors you see these metaphors everywhere well, you know, if you thought metaphor was just what Aristotle said, et cetera, it was in the, the words and so on. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. And if people, you know, read the book and get and understood it, then, you know, they see it. It's real. This is part of unconscious thought. Um, you asked me about some books, by the way. I took a bunch out. And there's... Um, uh, there's a one on the top called uh, Before You Know It by John Barge, which is about unconscious thought. Wonderful book. He's a great scholar in this. Uh, and I, um, there's wanna, a bunch of books. Do you want to walk me through your, your uh, books there? I just I took a small number out. You asked me some. Um, one of the most important is uh, Antonio Damasio's Descartes' Error about uh, how emotions are primary and how, and what it was interesting about that for me personally was before I had met Damasio, I met him and worked with him on this stuff. Uh, I had uh, noticed that there were metaphors for anger and I worked out the metaphor system for anger. I had, I have a paper on the metaphor system for anger and that what that showed was that emotion had a, a conceptual structure. The emotions were not mere feelings. They were feelings that, that, that had a logic to them. And that's something that um, what Damasio pointed out was that you know, Descartes, Descartes, what was Descartes' error? Descartes' error was that thought was all rational and no, no emotions. And he's pointed out that it was both together. And I had found that it was both together from the opposite perspective. 
you know, I read that, I, I realized that that was together, you know, that, that, that we had the same idea from the opposite perspective. And I got in touch with him and we became friends and I worked with him for many years. But uh, amazing guy. Uh, here's a here's a sort of maybe left field question. Which of your projects do you think is most undervalued? Uh, that is, is there is there something that you're personally proud of that you thought was you know a very interesting insight that didn't receive as much attention as uh, some of your other work? Yes, um, there's a the book on mathematics, metaphorical structure of mathematics. Uh, called Where Mathematics Comes From. I did it with Rafael Nunez. Um, uh, that's an interesting story too. Uh, Rafael, first thing, who is Rafael Nunez? Uh, he's from, he was from Chile and he was the tennis champion of Chile. When he came to Berkeley, uh, he would go down to the tennis courts and where they would play, had doubles teams and he, uh, would play against two other players and went beat them. <laughs> Best tennis player I ever saw in my life. <laughs> but you know, so he would. But he was, you know, tennis champion of Chile. But also, uh, he had studied mathematics, and his main interest was in infinity. And uh, he looked me up, and he said, uh, "What have you thought about infinity?" And I said, "Actually, I hadn't thought much about it." And he said, well, how do you, how do the people understand infinity? And he had, he'd been doing some stuff in child psychology. And he, he was doing stuff about how would, would kids think about infinity as going on and on and on, or, you know, or infinity, there's uh, infinity as a thing. So for example, uh, if you're looking down the railroad tracks and you, you see the things, the tracks going off into infinity, there's a point at infinity. Right, uh, and uh, in certain forms of geometry that um, uh, have that are, that are like that, there's um, uh, all parallel lines meet at infinity in one direction, but then they can be in any direction. So you can have a circle at infinity in that form of geometry. And uh, he was he had just collected examples of infinity, and he said he came to me. And he said, I've got all these examples of people at infinity, but we never encounter infinity. How can we understand infinity? We must be using a metaphors to understand infinity. Well, what are they? So we started studying it and we found out that there were, there was a thing called the basic metaphor for infinity and then a bunch of others. But we found out that in fact, what those, what they were. And uh, the, where mathematics comes from has some big, big sections on the basic metaphor for infinity and all the metaphors for infinity and how they work and so on. And um, it was and it's interesting going back over uh, people like uh, Georg Cantor, who had first come up with works on infinity and levels of infinity. He had studied levels of infinity, and uh, we worked out what the structure of levels of infinity would have to be and so on. So, um, you know, uh, because Raphael got interested in that, uh, I worked with him and we figured out a lot of this stuff. 
So you've been working on metaphor for, you know, at least four decades now. I'm curious, how has your thinking on the subject changed over time? Is there any, uh, are there any shifts that have taken place or anything, any critiques that have given you, that have kept you up at night, that have, that have given you pause for, um, you know, changing, changing your mind on something? Well, what's several things that are interesting, Uh, let me put this aside and come back to it because there's another concept called framing that enters here. Um, The idea of framing was first studied seriously by a colleague of mine named Charles Fillmore, who is now deceased, but did great work on this. Um, He was the person who figured out what's called frame semantics. And what he discovered was that every word and and every language he knew, and he knew a bunch of languages, every word was defined relative to a frame, what he called a frame structure. Frame structure is think of a node and nodes, things related to each other, hierarchically, like one level down, with connections between them at one level down, inferential connections, logical relations. And he worked out a whole lot of them. And he, he saw the study of framing as lexicography. And that's what he was. He was a linguist who was interested in words and the lexicon. And he saw framing as lexicography. Well, I looked at his stuff on framing and I saw it in politics everywhere. He didn't wanna, he, he just said, look, I'm a linguist. I don't go into politics, you know, I'll leave it alone. And I said, but that's crucial. If framing is in politics and in social life, we better understand it. And so I went off and I you know, wrote uh, a major book on framing in politics and, and in social life. And that book you know, spread. <laughs> it's now out there. People talk about framing in politics all the time. And it's from that book and ultimately from Fillmore's work. Um, Fillmore died some years back, um, but uh, the, um, you know, the, his work on framing, uh, you know, was something I could brought into politics and that is just spread. Uh, uh, I have a book called Don't Think of an Elephant, Know Your Values and Frame the Debate. And that book was read very, very widely and that, when growth framing into politics. So that, that's where all that stuff comes from. <laughs> there was a show on CNN last night called Framing Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> so you never know where these things will, will turn up. And so that exerted, uh, or that represented a, a change in how you thought about metaphorical structure or that was that was a particular oh i thought about it as metaphors as mapping from frames to frames that is every domain every conceptual domain has a frame structure and metaphors map from one conceptual domain to another it's mapping frames to frames to other frames so if you have frames and you have metaphorical mappings then you have a, a huge amount of cognitive structure right there. So another one of your, your books, the follow-up to Metaphors We Live By, is Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things. Mm-hmm. 
do you regret not naming that book Women Fire and Other Dangerous Things? Um, Does that feel like a missed opportunity in retrospect? It was interesting that about that. Um, that came up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was brought up by my cousin Naomi, who is a feminist, uh, femi- feminist anthropologist. And, um, you know, she, she thought I should do that. So I should do that. But um, I decided not to uh, because of where this came from. Uh, this came from the study by a friend of mine who was um, an anthropologist, anthropological linguist working in Australia with indigenous people in Australia. And the people we worked with had various categories um, for things. They had, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, category, you know, the male category uh, for things males did. Male, it is males and hunting, you know. Um, but for women, what do women do? They'll they cooked. <laughs> but um, Fire was seen as dangerous in Australia because it can be very, the sun can be really hot. You gotta be very careful in certain parts of Australia if you're going out in the sun. And there's a, um, an insect that if it bites you is very, very painful and pain like the worst sunburn you could get. And so um, they were seen as dangerous things. And it turned out that the Aborigines in Australia had a category in their, in their language for women, fire, and dangerous things. They had one category that had to do with men and hunting and so on, and one for women and fire and dangerous things, and then uh, one for other kinds of objects and so on. And uh, they had you know, uh, four categories, but category number two was women, fire, and dangerous things. Uh, now, when you think about it, uh, the study of categorization for me was the study of all human beings. We categorize. But Aristotle had a theory of categorization and it didn't fit this. This theory of categorization had to do with his theory of categories. And, um, but what I discovered, his theory of categories had to do with the idea that uh, there was there was one idea that defined the whole category. What I discovered was that categories uh, had a central idea, and then they they branched out from in various other categories. And um, you know, if you uh, looked, at, I, I took the category mother, for example. Well, this you know standard category of mother, a person who gives birth to you, uh, who raises you, who's married to your father. Okay? That's the usual one. But there are all kinds of other mothers. There are unmarried mothers, and you know, and you know, start looking at um, you know kind of mothers who get uh, use artificial insemination, and you know, lots of of uh, and uh, stepmothers, and so on. If you look at the category mother, it turns out to be what I call a radial category. 
there's a central case, and then there are branches that go out that pick out some part of the central case, but not the other parts. And they go in various directions. That's like the center, what I call a radial category, is a center, and then it, the radial branches. And it turns out there are lots of radial categories. What I discovered was that categorization is not like Aristotle said, with this one thing that, you know, one set of ideas that fits everything in the category, but rather they're radial categories and that they're everywhere. And that's what that book is about. So I have one last question for you here, George, then I'll let you go. Uh, and that's, is there any contemporary work on metaphors or even embodied cognition that you're especially excited about or any work that you'd like to see done uh, that you think hasn't, hasn't quite been, been broached yet? Um, that's a tough one. Um, there have been a number of students of mine who've gone out and done very interesting stuff. Um, and they're still doing it. Um, and they've, uh, a couple of them have gone into psychology. Adele Goldberg at Princeton, for example, is in the psych department and she does experiment, experimental work uh, on all of this. And I think there's a lot of work to be done there in terms of experimental work on, um, you know, how you could tell what uh, the metaphor and framing structure is um, and so on. Uh, I think there's a, a, a future in it, but it, it, it's not so easy. Uh, Adele is the smartest student I ever had. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, there's no... There isn't another Adele out there. There's, you know, there's another uh, woman named Juana David who does other kind of work on, on, in this area. And she's really good too. I mean, there are a number of people who do excellent work in these areas. And what they show is that there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, and, and a lot of that work requires either the ability to do work in psychology or other fields or having insights I'd never had, you know? So, um, you know, there's plenty, there's plenty to be done. Uh, the problem is that um, there isn't a single center now where all of that stuff is taught and where uh, all the people doing that are located. And, um, you know, uh, Adele is in the psych department at Princeton and there aren't other people and you know the, the linguistics department, the Princeton is totally different. <laughs> so there's another part, which is in linguistics departments that are based on Chomsky and linguistics, there's no way that metaphor can enter there. Chomsky assumed everything was based on Descartesian rationalism and metaphor could, can't possibly enter that. So they can't study it. So you have that, that issue. Well, uh, George, I think that just goes to show that uh, when I asked you about your theory and you said it stuck around because it's true, it doesn't have to be the case because look at Chomsky's theory. It's stuck around an awful long time and it doesn't have quite the same benefit of, uh, of, of, of being true. Well, you know, I mean, he is who he is. He's still there. <laughs> anyway, George, thank you uh, so much for taking the time to talk today. This was really cool to hear so much of your background and, um, you know, uh, so much of what's influenced you. Well, thank you. Uh, just, by the way, um, 
you did a great job. I, I, no, I, I mean that. Um, you know, I appreciate good interviewers. And, That's nice um, of you to say. You're very, very good at it. And you, Thank you. you know, uh, and uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was my pleasure. And thanks, thanks for taking time. I'm glad we could, I'm glad we could get around to this. That was my conversation with George Lakoff. Thanks for listening. <laughs> I, uh, you know, um, I, I guess I wasn't totally sure what to expect going into this, this conversation, but I just, I definitely derived a lot of delight from just how delighted George himself was to talk about his childhood and, and how much, you know, he seemed to be into that. Because, you know, sometimes you talk to, you know, these big shot academics and whatever, and you ask them, like, oh, well, you know, tell me about your childhood. And they give you fucking nothing, right? They, like, they don't know what to say about it, everything. And, you know, like I say, you don't really know how a person's going to respond to it, um, particularly academics, because there's not, like, there's usually not a big canon of them expressing this kind of stuff to like go into and get a sense of how they talk about it beforehand. But so you never know how they're really gonna, they're going to take it and what they're, what they're going to respond to it like. And so, you know, it was, it was just fun to let George go on about sort of whatever he thought was important and, you know, interesting and notable from that, you know, sort of those early experiences and then to connect him up later on with the, uh, the big ideas that, you know, we're maybe more familiar with. So, yep, it was a fun conversation and it was generous of him to take his time to talk to me. If you did like this episode, um, one that I'd recommend checking out besides the Annie Murphy Paul one that I mentioned at the top, which covers a lot more of the extended mind, uh, you know, a, a sibling of the embodied mind, uh, you know, sort of concepts and ideas. Uh, a previous one would be my interview with Susan Golden Meadow. She is a Rebel Heart you know, top prize in cognitive science winner. And her work also is based in language and body. So in particular, her, work's like, her work looks at gesture and how gesture structures our language in a deeper way than we uh, often give it credit for. So if you do feel like you're getting something from the show, please consider subscribing or giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. And most of all, I would appreciate, as always, if you could check out codycommerce.substack.com to subscribe to my newsletter or even buy a premium subscription. So thank you for listening. And I will be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Mm-hmm.